turmoil in the ruble, fraud at a REIT, and Elizabeth Warren takes aim at Citigroup. This is Industry Focus. Hi, Fools. Financial analyst Michael Douglas here with our senior banking specialist, John Maxfield, and we've got a packed show today. John, how's Portland? It's great. It's Our great. And, and, and it's particularly great that we have this technology that I can see you all across the country in real time. It's wonderful. Michael. <laughs> Although, yeah. I'll say, I will say this, that there is so much joy and, and cheer coursing through the economy, right, or through the, through the society right now. It must be driving you nuts. Uh, well, yeah, a little bit. Uh, fortunately, we can turn to the stock market and find really quite the opposite going on. So it's, uh, it's, been, it's been kind of a crazy couple weeks in the market. Uh, of course, the Russian rate jump has uh, just, you know, huge turmoil with the ruble, of course, uh, connected to um, the issues with oil prices, oil prices falling, the ruble crashing against the dollar. Um, let's, let's, let's talk through that. What's the background there? So the background is this. So the United States, you know, we put on some sanctions, yeah. on, some economic sanctions onto Russia following, all, you know, the Ukraine ordeal. And then the OPEC came in and they are pushing oil prices down, right? I think oil prices have fallen something like 50% over the last few months. Well, the problem with this for a country like Russia that exports a lot of oil and natural gas is that by driving down that price, it reduces the demand for their currency because not as, you know, not as much, you know, stuff, so to speak, is being purchased from Russia. And by reducing the demand for their currency, mm -hmm. it tanks the value. And I think, you know, right now, I think over the, since, over the past three months or over the past two months, the value of the ruble has fallen by 42%, which is extraordinary for a, for a country the size of Russia. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a big deal. Imagine if that happened in the United States. Heck, you know, let's face it, a 2% currency fluctuation in the United States is a big deal. Um, so, so Russia's response has been to hike interest rates. That's exactly right. How's they, that panning out? Well, it, it remains to be seen. This is, it remains to be seen. This is an unfolding story. So yeah. last week they they hiked the rate from something like ten and a half percent, their benchmark interest rate, for something like ten and a half percent, all the way up to seventeen percent. And when you consider, you know, as as a comparison, in the United States, when the Federal Reserve moves interest rates by a half a percent, a quarter percent, that is a market moving um, 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 decision by the Federal Reserve. Right. So when you consider that that Russia's central bank increased interest rates by 7% up to 17%, and these are short-term benchmark rates. It is, it is incredible. And, and this is something we were talking about earlier, but one of the, now we're starting to see the reverberations through the Russian economy. And just this morning, uh, the Russian regulators went in and seized a bank um, because of all this turmoil in the economies threatening the solvency of their banks. And so, you know, it remains to be seen how, the, how that will work its way through the rest of the economy, but it is definitely a story um, that anybody interested in history or economics or anything like that um, should definitely watch just to see kind of how it unfolds. Well, or also who are interested in the world market because, I mean, certainly uh, massive trouble at a what is a pretty darn big market is uh, definitely of concern, I think, to all of us, um, all of us across the pond. So definitely something we'll want to watch very closely. Any final thoughts there, John? No, I mean, it, this is just a, just a fascinating thing to watch. And, if nothing else, it shows that economic sanctions, you know, there's a lot of um, angst when, you know, a, 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 a U.S. president will come in and instead of using maybe um, some more uh, coercive measures, they'll just kind of revert to economic sanctions. But we saw the same thing work really effectively with Iran at the yeah. end of 2011 when their currency shot 
shot way down, just like Russia's has, and it's really pushed them to the negotiating table. So, so probably even among, even in addition to the market stuff, which you know it's hard to say how this is going to play out in common stocks in the United States in particular. But even beyond that, this is you know this shows us just how effective these type of measures can be. Yeah, absolutely. So both public policy and sort of a money, and then of course, as you mentioned, history and economic uh, set of lessons to be learned here. So very interesting for us, and it's definitely something we'll want to watch moving forward. Let's turn to uh, our second story. Um, uh, X, uh, the ex-American Realty um, Capital Properties chair has been accused of ordering accounting changes, according to our good friends at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so basically, uh, fraud in a mortgagery, um, which is probably uh, something that I think has been depressingly familiar. Yeah, we've seen this on a number of occasions mm -hmm. over the last few years. So what's going on at American Realty Capital Partners is there's a measure, it's a non-GAAP measure of cash flow that their executives tell shareholders that, look, this is a more accurate reflection of our fundamental performance than net income. So they're telling all their shareholders to look at this number. Well, it turns out that the executives at the very top, and this is all still alleged, but there is, it seems to be relatively convincing that, this, that both the chairman and this current CEO of American Realty Partners was telling the, uh, the accounting department to artificially inflate this proxy for income that shareholders should be following. And there's a lawsuit filed last week that, uh, that's really starting to flesh out the facts here. But what's unfortunate is that you know, when, you, when you look at what's going on not only at American Realty, but what's going on at, say, Analyst Capital Management and Chimera Investment Corporation, which is a publicly traded portfolio company that's also a REIT, of analytic capital management, and then in the BDC realm, that's business development company realm, which are similar, similarly structured investment funds that are publicly traded that invest in um, the debt of companies that are involved in leveraged finance transactions. Right. We've seen similar things going on at Prospect Capital Corporation, and so let's just let's just kind of look at each one of these. So at analytic capital management, they've taken their management and they've externalized it. And by doing that, they've, they've effectively uh, sapped all the intrinsic value out of this corporate entity other than the assets in the portfolio itself. At Chimera, they too had an accounting irregularity that overstated its income since inception in 2000, between 2007 and 2011 by a factor of three. So yeah. they actually earned $367 million, whereas before they were claiming to earn over $1 billion. So a very large difference there. And then in Prospect's case, they recently went through a transaction where they sold one of their portfolio companies, and they did it in a way that artificially hiked the fees that the external manager will receive, which means that the, the managers of Prospect will earn more money themselves at the expense of shareholders. So unfortunately, it, it, it's a really disappointing um, trend that we're seeing among these high-yielding stocks, and particularly because a lot of the investors in these companies we can presume are income-seeking investors, which often are retirees. Yeah, and, well, and so and so let's let's unpack this piece by piece a little bit, right? So so first off, external management. Uh, so basically, this idea that you know your CEO is actually sort of paid by this other corporate entity, and you just pay, let's say, a flat fee. Usually, the numbers I see are like one and a half percent of. Uh, uh, assets under management, something like that. Um, I mean, that really doesn't seem to align with shareholder needs, right? Uh, particularly because often these there's not even an incentive bonus paid uh, based on performance. They just are paid based on assets under management. 
Well, that yeah, to a certain extent that's true. So when you externalize your management in these types of companies, mm -hmm. the biggest benefit to the management itself is that they no longer have to report how their executives themselves are being compensated. Right. And that's a big part of the SEC's regulations that were put into place back in the Great Depression. The, the shareholders, they are the owners of these companies. They have the right to know both how much and, how, in, and in which way the executives of the companies that the shareholders own are being compensated right. by externally and, and by structuring it in this external management way, they just don't see that. Yeah, no, that's a, that is a definitely a, uh, a a very interesting and and disconcerting problem. Uh, so, so and let then, me just bring up yeah, one, on. one. Let me just bring up one more point. Another problem that we see with these companies. So the question is, why are these companies particularly prone to this type of behavior? Right. Oh, see, I was about to ask this. Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth, John. <laughs> Right. Well, and, and one of the reasons is that the, the kind of the structure, the legal structure, allows them mm -hmm. to reduce transparency. But on top of that, even so, some of these companies used to not be externally managed, but then like Annaly, but then they switched to ex, to internal management. So we actually have a window into how they compensated themselves before. And in Annaly, in particular, one of the things they did is their incentive structure, their incentive bonus structure for their executives would compensate the executives for issuing or for growth in book value. And growth in book value at a REIT, the only way that can be accomplished is by issuing more shares of common stock. And the reason for this is because REITs, in order to get preferential tax treatment, which is the biggest benefit to running a, to running a REIT, the REIT itself has to distribute at least 90% of its net of its taxable income to shareholders. Well, if you're distributing all of basically all of your income to shareholders, there's only one way to grow book value, and that is to just issue more shares of common stock. So when you when you kind of put all this together, it looks more like a multi-level marketing company. I don't mean that in a positive way um, <laughs> than it does a traditional investment trust. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point, and and one of the reasons that um, yeah, me personally, I've shied away from. Uh, BDCs and Emirates is just because um, you know it does seem that there's this issue with alignment and kind of these issues with transparency. Do you see any attractive plays in the space, or because these issues are they just generally for you stay aways? Look, let me say first off that I'm extremely sympathetic to the shareholders of these companies. Right. Right. I mean, these are people who are going after income. These are probably people who are in retirement and don't have a lot of extra space to play with, right? right? And they need that income to survive on. The problem, in my opinion, is that if you believe that the integrity of executives is important, then this is a sector that, as a general rule, you should probably avoid. So if you're looking for a bigger, you know, for a decent dividend stock, you should probably go more in the blue trip direction. Yeah, no, I think that makes, I think that makes good sense. Um, and Speaking of which, let's go ahead and turn to our third story. Elizabeth Warren taking, uh, uh, definitely taking aim at Citigroup. Her argument has been that Citigroup has way too much influence, and I would say in generally that sort of big banks have way too much uh, influence on Capitol Hill. But I, 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 that doesn't seem like quite your contention, John. Right. So Elizabeth Warren is saying that look, if you go through all the executive, or you know, all these different departments in the executive branch. There are a shocking number of Citigroup alum, either alum or people who then subsequently have gone on to work at Citigroup. And she, and, and she doesn't like this because it just shows like the over-influence of Wall Street. Well, my contention is that the problem isn't that 
a huge bank like Citigroup, which has $2 trillion in assets on its balance sheet. The other problem is that they, that they are putting people into positions in, in Washington. I mean, who else is going, to, who has the expertise to make financial decisions for the country at large other than these financiers who have all this experience, right? The problem instead is that they're getting them from Citigroup in particular. Yeah. And Citigroup, this is something I've talked about on numerous occasions, as you know, Michael, Citigroup is probably one of the worst-run banks in the country over the past 100 years. Let me just go through a short list to give you an idea. All right, so in the early 1920s, there were sugar loans to Cuba that threatened to wipe out the entire capital of Citigroup. Later in that same decade, it had a securities affiliate that was repackaging failed bank loans to emerging market companies or countries in Latin America and then selling those, they're repackaging into bonds and then selling those bonds to individual investors like you and me. And this is one of the reasons why Glass-Steagall came about at the time. Right. In, in the early 1930s, it was financing, there was a guy by name of, I think it's Ivar Kruger, who was basically the, the, the equivalent of Bernie Madoff in, that, in, in the 1930s. They were financing his Ponzi scheme operation. Half a century later, it lent billions of dollars to the same Latin American countries that defaulted and cost all of those mom and pop investors all that money during the Great Depression. So it's doing that again. It almost went under again in the 1980s. In the 1990s, it fueled the internet bubble because it had analysts going out and artificially pumping up the stocks of their clients. Yeah. Uh, after the turn of the century, it was fined nearly $5 billion for aiding and betting the frauds at Enron and WorldCom. And of course, just recently, right, we had all this debacle that Citigroup would have gone under, but for the intervention of the federal government during the financial crisis. So the, so the question isn't so much, why do financiers at these large corporations have influence in Washington? The question is, why in the world would we want the people at Citigroup in these positions given their record? Yeah, and certainly um, given, as you've noted many times, the stock's performance, the business's performance, which we like to think is let's say pretty closely correlated to the price, um, and just the, uh, as you know, the laundry list of just enormous problems. Um, that seems to, to be, I think, a very appropriate question to be asking. Certainly there are some much more attractive banks um, for, um, for regulators to perhaps be trying to poach people from. Um, that's, uh, that's a good note for us to end on. Uh, John, thanks as always for your contributions. Uh, Folks uh, who are listening and watching, stay tuned to fool.com for all of your banking, financials, Russian ruble, and other investing needs, uh, and fool on.